0: Good morning, welcome. Glad to have you all with us. We are going to be in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6 today. This is pretty much the entire section of ethical instruction in the letter. We're going to do it all in one day. I'm going to read part of it to give you a flavor for the whole thing, but then I'll, I'll try to teach all of it. So I'm going to start with Ephesians 4, uh, verse 17. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. Uh, follow along. Keep the Bible open in front of you as we go. Ephesians four seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless our time together as we look at these couple of chapters. Help us to understand them. Uh, Much of it is controversial in our world, much of it is offensive. But Lord, help us to see in it the goodness of the kind of life that you have for us and for our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is shifting from describing God's glorious plan in chapters 1 through 3, God's glorious plan for humanity and for the universe, now he's shifting to what it means for how we should live, for how we should behave. He says there at the beginning of chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's been using that word a lot in the first couple chapters, that God has called us even from before the world was made. And now Paul says, I want to talk to you about what it looks like to live appropriately in light of this calling. And so as he did at the beginning of chapter 3, once again, he identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. But then very strikingly, in chapter 4, verse 3, he uses a word related to this word for prisoner literally in greek prisoner is somebody who's just it just means being in bonds paul says in, in verse 3 there that the christian life is a life of being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that word is almost the same word as the word for prisoner there's a sense in which knowing god and living rightly in the community of his people means being bound Being subject to limits, restrictions, and boundaries. There's a sense in which it means being tied down. But that this is actually a good thing. It's a life giving thing. But by contrast, perhaps the most important thing in our society today in the modern world, one of the most, maybe the most fundamental priority in the modern world, is to not be limited. In thousands of ways, we are constantly told and taught that the good life is about being free. It's about avoiding commitment. It's about being unbound. And yet the great and the tragic irony of our world is that even as it prides itself on its enlightenment and its freedom is characterized by all kinds of bondage. In the same way that Paul says down in verse 19 that the ancient Gentile world has handed themselves over to sensuality and greed. They've willingly enslaved themselves. These two chapters in Ephesians are about the contrast between these two worlds. On the one hand, the passage is describing the life and the nature of the church, the family of God, those who are bound to God and therefore bound to each other. And then on the other hand, the passage contrasts this community with the life and the nature of the community outside the church, what the New Testament calls the world, or sometimes this age. Last week I told you that our church prioritizes two things. We prioritize the proclamation of God's word, which is what Ephesians 3 helped us to understand. Our church also prioritizes the community of God's people. I think these chapters today help us in a lot of ways to see what it means to say that a church is a community. It's a family distinct from the family and the community of the world. These chapters help us to see what it looks like to live in light of that. I'm going to jump around a bit in the passage to give you a sense of the whole sweep of the whole thing. So again, keep your Bibles open. I'll be jumping around quite a bit. But the first thing I want you to see is what Paul has to say about our old community, uh, the community that's metaphorically out there, the world. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, that you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. The futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding. He describes people living in the world as ignorant. He says they're hard of heart. He says they've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality and greed and purity. He says many similar things in the first half of chapter 5. Now, Paul is not saying that everybody who is outside the church is as sinful as they possibly could be. Uh, By God's great kindness and mercy, he restrains a great deal of evil and sin in the world, even by people who don't acknowledge that he's doing so. Uh, But Paul is saying that the world is fundamentally and profoundly broken and futile. Uh, He's using some of the language that we saw a couple years ago in Ecclesiastes about the ultimate futility of life in this world. Paul says that the minds and the hearts of sinful humans are bent and twisted. The one way to think of it, if you're a musician, is that our minds are badly out of tune. Paul says this about his own Roman world, which prided itself on its philosophical and its intellectual prowess, these riches that they had inherited from the Greek world, from guys like Pythagoras and Plato. On top of all these intellectual riches that the Romans had inherited, they built on top of it a great deal of military and engineering marvels. But Paul looks at the Roman world with all of its spectacular achievements uh, made up, and he says it's made up of people with broken minds, people with dark hearts. They're ignorant and deluded to the core. We see the same kind of thing in our own world today. Uh, our society is obsessed with experts experts with education, with credentials. And with this, there's a widespread and a mindless acceptance of fads, narratives, and propaganda. We see it even quite recently in the way that so many have become so fearful, so angry over whatever the latest outrage, current event might be. We see it too in the growth of virtue signaling, online posturing, merciless scapegoating and demonizing of our opponents. But you see it too. You see this darkness in our world's widespread meaninglessness and despair, addictions, skyrocketing overdoses, suicides, profound mental health crises exacerbated by drugs and social media. And in like Paul's world, we see it too in our society's moral depravity. Paul says in chapter 5 that it's shameful to even mention what his contemporaries were doing in secret. Uh, and part of me wants to say, yeah, a lot of what's done and promoted in public today is also too shameful to mention, at least in church with kids around. I had this great idea to start my sermon today with some quotes by a very left-wing feminist uh, writtenly, written recently about the failure of the sexual revolution and all the misery that it brings on our world. And I couldn't do it because every quote I could find of hers was talking about all kinds of things that a lot of the parents would be mad about me mentioning in front of their kids. Uh, And among many confusions, one of the most serious in our society today is its growing refusal to admit one of the world's most basic and obvious realities, the contrast and interrelationship between male and female, the transcendent significance of their sexual union, For decades, this fundamental confusion has unleashed a flood of misery, especially on the poor and on children. But we also see this dark moral depravity in this calloused evil that Paul talks about. We see it in our own ways today. We see calloused evil in mass shootings and human trafficking and domestic violence. Our society is profoundly, perhaps terminally, ill. But less spectacularly, our world widely and often shamelessly engages in the same basic depravities that Paul zeroes in on throughout the chapters. These are things which his world and our world constantly make excuses for. Uh, I think you could sum them up under at least three headings. The first one that he talks about quite a bit in these chapters is sexual licentiousness. The second one that he talks about quite a bit is greed, consumerism, envy. He says that this is really just idolatry. And the third one is various ways of talking about anger and slander and division. All of it made Paul's world miserable. All of it's making our world miserable. So that's the old community of death and chaos. Chaos. But by contrast, Paul says his main point throughout these chapters is to talk about this new community, the church. It's created by God on the basis of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God forgiving our sins, giving us new life, not because we deserve it or because we can pay it back, but just because he wants to, just because he loves us. That's what makes this new community what it is and gives it its power to live out this new way. Now, the first thing I want you to see from these chapters about what it means to belong to this new community of the church is that it involves having a new identity, a new identity. Uh, our world in many ways is fixated on this question of identity, often of creating it or finding it or recreating it. But the Bible says that God graciously gives you a new identity. It's not something for you to find or to make. It's something that God hands to you. Chapter five, verse one says that we are to be imitators of God, talking about our behavior, why? Because we are beloved children. We've been adopted into God's family as his precious children. We see and we know how good and how kind he is. And so, of course, like kids with their parents, of course, we want to be like him. We want to reflect him. We remember I used to be an orphan. I was dark in my mind, in my heart, but now by his grace, I am a dearly loved child of God even if I don't always feel like one or act like one. Paul also says a couple times in chapter 5 that at one time you were darkness, but now you're light. He says walk as children of light. He says in verse 9 of chapter 5 that being light means that our lives and our identity now revolve around goodness and integrity and truth. Our old identity was in the world in life of darkness, of depravity and of deception. But now God's given us A new identity. Related to that, Paul also wants us to see that we have a new heart. A new heart. Uh, Flip back to chapter 4, verse 22. Just after Paul's listed out all these ways that our old community of the world was and is marked by this dark twistedness. He says, but this isn't the way that you learned Christ. He says, you were taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus. And then he lays out what it is that you are taught, what it is that it means when you come to Jesus for the first time. Paul says that in Christ, we've once and for all, first of all, we've set aside our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he says that in Christ, we've been given renewed minds. That's in contrast to the futile and broken mind of the world. And then he says, thirdly, and these are all different angles on the same thing, he says, thirdly, what it means to learn Christ, what it means to become a student of Jesus, is that you've been recreated as a new self. You've set aside the old self, and you've been recreated as a new self. You're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God promises that because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we are doing or what we will do, but only because of what Jesus has done, God promises that we really do have a new identity. We have a new heart. We've been fundamentally recreated. You might not always feel that way. You might not always act that way. But it's the reality, and we need to accept God's promise because it's what Jesus has done, not what we've done. We accept this gracious gift of God by faith, even if the outward sinful reality often suggests that we aren't really recreated. But as I've said a couple of times in this series, this new identity and this new heart, they're not less than individual realities, but they are certainly a lot more than individual. Having a new identity also brings with it a new community, a new family. In these chapters, Paul is giving ethical instructions, many of which need to be applied individually, but he's also speaking to what it means to be in relationship with one another. He calls the church the body of, of Christ. Christ is the head, each individual Christian is a body part, so to speak. He says that together we're supposed to be maturing, we're supposed to be growing up into a community that better and better reflects who Jesus is. Look at chapter 4 verse 15. Paul says we are to grow up in every way. It applies to everything about your life, not just what you're doing on Sunday mornings. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. He says, each part works properly according to the gifts and the callings that God gives to each one of us. Why? So that the body might grow and build itself up in love. God gives each of us gifts, but he gives them to us so that we can use them for one another, to encourage and help each other, to help us reflect as a community who Jesus is. So there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need each other. We need the local church. We're to be marked by and even eager for, Paul says, eager for unity with one another. Chapter 4, verse 4 he says, There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul says in verse 7 that Christ has given his body gifts so that his beloved church might mature and grow up in these ways. What are these gifts? He hasn't left us to ourselves to figure it out. He's given us something. Paul says in verse 11 there, we're still in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says that when Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, which I think is a a bit of a way of referring to Pentecost, when Jesus also sent the spirit down, Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down. When Jesus did that, it says that uh, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... In other words, Jesus' great gift to his church is men. Specifically, men who proclaim and teach his words. Both the original prophets and apostles, but also now, too, the shepherds and teachers. That's a way of describing ordinary pastors and elders whose job it is, my job, the elders of his church, our job, is to pass on to explain, to apply the word of God which has been handed down to us by the apostles through the ages. Verse 12 says, it's through the proclamation of Jesus' word through these specially called pastors and elders, it's through them, and through them doing what they're supposed to be doing, that the church is equipped and strengthened and built up so that they know who Christ is, so that they are united in their knowledge of him. They do this, we do this, I do this. Verse 14 says, so that the church might not be misled and harmed by the false teaching and deceitful schemes of those who might initially appear to be accurately speaking for and about Jesus. The New Testament is constantly warning about the danger of false teaching because false teaching does not look like false teaching. It looks like good teaching. We have to be on guard. As these leaders nourish the body through this formal ministry of the word, what I'm doing right now, individual Christians are also learning to encourage each other through the informal ministry of sharing God's word with one another. That's also a lot of what Paul is saying here. Look at verse 15. So there's the formal ministry, but there's also this informal ministry that all Christians have. Verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Uh, chapter four, verse 25 says that we are to speak the truth with each other because we're members of each other down in chapter five, verse 19, we're commanded to be filled with the spirit. When I was in college, I was told that being filled with the spirit meant that you had this super duper, uh, extra special level of the Christian life. But you can see there that what Paul means by that is actually quite ordinary. He says, it means you're singing. It means you're praying. It means you're speaking to each other. That's the new community. It's a family of forgiven sinners made up of people with new hearts and a new identity. And so as this new community, we also see that we do and should have a new way of life. Uh, There's a certain set of behaviors. There's a certain pattern of how we treat each other and act. Uh, I said earlier that Paul primarily seems to focus on three kinds of sins in this chapter. On licentiousness, on greed, and on anger. But throughout the chapters, Paul points out that instead of this old way, first of all, this old way of sexual lust and license, the new way is that we are marked by love and humility. We don't use people anymore for our own purposes or our own pleasure. We don't manipulate them to get them to do what we want. But rather, we submit to one another. Chapter 5, verse 21 says, with lives and attitudes of humble service. And then second, instead of greed and envy... This new way of life is marked by generosity. Chapter 4, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anybody in need. And then thirdly and finally, instead of anger and bitterness and division, this new community is marked by gentleness and kindness, words that are calm and encouraging and helpful. All over these chapters, Paul keeps talking about the words that come out of your mouth, the way that you speak to other people, the way that you speak about them. Chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk, literally it says, no rotten word come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And related to this, unlike our wider world of bitter record-keeping and entitled score-settling, the relationships in the church should be marked by reconciliation. He says, Be tender hearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul maps out this new way of life, a life of love and generosity, and gentle speech. He maps it out onto a few different kinds of relationships. In chapter 5, verse 22, he applies it to marriage. Uh, which he says is a great mystery from the creation of the world. Paul says this mystery of marriage was always designed by God to illustrate and display the love between Christ and his beloved church. Paul says that husbands are supposed to be the sacrificial loving leaders in their marriages and their families. They're supposed to cherish and nurture their wives. And he says that wives are supposed to be honoring and helping their husbands as his most important friend and ally. Now, Paul gives very little detail about what this can or must look like practically. He is giving basic biblical principles for God's design for marriage and the family. I know that a lot of this, at least one half of it, is highly controversial. The other half of it was very controversial in Paul's world. uh, And that much of this has been terribly abused. And that many of you... Uh, suffer a great deal of sadness and loneliness in your marriages. I'd be happy to talk with any of you afterwards. Uh, but briefly, especially on this point of what's so controversial today about this, uh, I would point out to you all that Paul is grounding these principles in creation. He points back to the very beginning of humanity. Uh, he's not grounding it in what Romans happened to prefer or practice in the first century. Uh, I would also point out that it all points to the loving relationship between christ and the church whose own roles are not interchangeable but paul also applies this new way of life to the relationships between parents and children he says that fathers in particular but fathers and mothers of course should be nurturing their children with god's instruction and discipline Uh, they should not be frustrating their children with harsh and unfair demands And then the flip side, Paul says children should be obeying their parents in the Lord as unto the Lord and so enjoying God's blessing. Paul says, he makes this interesting observation to the kids in the church. He says, you know, this command, the fifth commandment is the first one where God promises to bless you. Uh, So you should really listen to your parents, kids. And then Paul applies this new way of life to the realm of slavery. Uh, Slavery has been practiced by and in every society in human history and it was extremely common in the ancient Roman world. Slavery then was often, not always, but often fairly different than transatlantic chattel slavery, uh, which itself was built on practices vehemently condemned by both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I taught you guys about that a couple of years ago when we went through Exodus. Uh, more generally, the Bible openly undermines and eventually destroys the institution of slavery. But here, Paul calls both slaves and masters to humility and to integrity. Uh, They apply today to various kinds of situations where we are under authority or exercising authority. And some of those situations, just like in Paul's day, were very difficult and perhaps extremely unjust. So that's the nature and the importance and the life of the new community of the church, in contrast to the darkness and the futility of the world outside. I want to close with some reflections on the why and the how. Why and how to live in light of what the church is and the kind of life appropriate to it. First of all, the why. Uh, Really, first of all, the why not. Paul is not interested in saving his society or the family or the culture for their own sakes. Paul is not interested in doing all this because he has a particularly nostalgic attachment to some golden age in the past. All through these chapters, instead, you see that everything is to be done for God. Everything is grounded in who God is. Everything is for his sake, not for any mere earthly reality or institution as much as we love them and should love them. We are to live in order to please God, in order to do his will. As the recreation of humanity, the church is our primary and our eternal community. But at the same time, much of what it means to imitate God, like Paul told us in chapter 5, much of what it means to learn Christ, like Paul told us in chapter 4, much of what that means means learning to follow God and Christ in seeking and saving the lost, just like they seek and save us. The church exists primarily to build up and to strengthen Christians, but it also exists to see people coming to faith in Christ. Our lives in here, so to speak, should and must have spillover effects out there. If they don't, that raises very serious questions about whether or not we really know who Jesus is. The life of the church can and should be a very important way of showing the world how good God is. If nobody ever notices who we are, notices what we're doing, if we are basically inoffensive and invisible, uh, something is seriously wrong with our church. The greatest way that we can love our neighbors, the greatest way that we can love our society, the best thing that we can do for our culture is to share the good news of Jesus and thereby to help people enter into the good life of God's community in the church with all of its spillover effects into our daily lives from day to day. We should value and prioritize the church accordingly as we look to endure whatever darkness might be descending upon our society as it continues to turn its back on Christ. But we should also be looking to see other people rescued from the darkness. We should love our neighbors. We should love our enemies. We should seek the lost. So that's the why. It's primarily about God. Second, how. First, how not to do it. We do not live by pearl clutching and finger wagging. Uh, At the big bad world out there, we do not shake our heads or shake in our boots. At how evil and wicked it all is out there. Look at us, aren't we so great? We're we're the ones that figured it out, those bad people out there. No, that's not how you do it. Remember, chapter two, remember that Paul very clearly, even offensively, reminds us that at one time all of us lived in this way. This is our community. The community of the world at one time was where all of us belonged. All of us, at one point, felt very much at home in this way of life, in that darkness and the depravity. Paul said in chapter 2, we were all children of wrath. So we should be profoundly humble as we consider where we came from. There is no room, there is no reason to sneer, to look down on those who don't know the light and the hope of Christ like we now do. Not because of anything in us, not because of anything we did, not because we made a good decision only because of God's grace. So that's not how you do it, but here's how you do it. I'm recycling from last week, end of chapter three. Paul says you do this by Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, rooted and grounded in his love. That's the only way that we can find strength and power and motivation to live in this new way. As painful and as difficult and as sacrificial as it might be. We have to know, we have to savor the love of Christ for sinners like us. Gratitude for the love of Jesus is what ultimately drives everything we say and do. So as we reach the end next week of this five-week generosity initiative and considering what is our church here for, why are we spending all this money to get this building set up so that we can use it for a long time to do all these things we're talking about, as we kind of start winding that down, let's remember the central importance and need for the church as God's community of light in the midst of the world's darkness. And let's live and think and give accordingly. Why? Because we want to please our loving Father. How? Because we're grounded in the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your great love for us. That even though we were children of wrath, bent against you in all kinds of ways sometimes very openly and spitefully sometimes with a great deal of apathy and ingratitude in all these ways Lord we were rejecting you and yet you loved us you called us to yourself make us more grateful for that cause our roots to go down deeper into the love of Christ so that we might endure the storms and the droughts and the darkness of this world Uh, how deeply we need it how desperately our world And this city needs your love and your light. Strengthen us to bring it to them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.